as, as we do. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Just be quiet for a few seconds. Asking the Holy Spirit to come and descend upon us. We ask the Father to reveal his love for us, uh, that you, he would give us the gift to see the Father's loving gaze upon us. We offer to him um, this evening and ask for his blessing upon it that it could be a time that is truly anointed by his Holy Spirit. So we open our hearts to him, we ask him to pour his grace in to the point that they are overflowing with his grace. Overflowing as we begin to look at his response to our captivity, to our sin. We ask the Lord Jesus to make himself known to us, that we could truly hear his voice as he calls to us, as he comes to rescue us. And we pray for the Holy Spirit's gift of courage to follow ever more closely. Pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Okay, so today we are looking at the beginning of God's response to our sin. So 3.1. Uh, this week and next week are probably my two favorite uh, ones because they deal with Jesus. And um, yeah, there's just a lot of, a lot of excitement uh, in my mind, in my heart about these two. Um, because really, if we're talking about the gospel, right, we can't, we can't ignore the other two parts. The other two parts are essential for us when we talk about the gospel. But this is like the heart of the gospel, uh, God's response to our sin. This is, this is the good news, right? When we talk about the gospel being good news, this is the incredible, it's meant to be, the, the incredible, transformative, life-changing news that the Lord wants to communicate to us. So if you remember the four parts to the kerygma, there we go, the goodness of creation Sin and its consequences, God's response to our sin, and our response to what God has done. So we spent the last two weeks talking about this, the goodness of creation. We could maybe say, why is there something rather than nothing? And that is because the good God, out of the abundance of love in his heart, freely chose to create everything that exists. And everything that exists is so vast and magnificent and good. Uh, this is why everything exists, and he creates it to love him in return. The highlight, the high point of everything that he makes is you, the human person. Individually, each of us can say with, with real like sincerity and truth, I am his favorite creature. He looks at each one of us, and he says to us, I know everything about you, and I care so deeply about you. The things that you're proud of and the things that you're embarrassed and ashamed of. I love you so much. 
and I want you to become like me. This is his plan for our lives, that we would become like him. And in response to that, right, why is everything so obviously messed up? That is because the human person has allowed himself, allowed herself to be deceived by the enemy of our race, who decides to go to war against us out of envy for God's plan uh, that he has for us. He is envious that God has a plan that we would become superior to the angels. And so he goes to war by making accusations against God, accusations against the people around us, and accusations even against ourselves. And we believe the accusations. We doubt the goodness of God. We doubt the goodness of the people around us. We doubt our own goodness. And so in the end, we end up divided from as many people as possible. And we're stuck in this place of clouded darkness, wondering, I don't know who I can trust. And so in the end, I end up relying on myself rather than on the Lord God. I say, I can figure this out for myself. I can determine what is good and what is evil. I don't need God for that. And when that happens, we sell ourselves into slavery to an enemy who is far more powerful than we really understand. And his one goal for our lives is to use us and abuse us over and over and over and over again. That was the happy note that we left on last week. <laughs> now we have to ask the question, so if that's the case, what, if anything, has God done to fix the mess? And if so, why is everything still messed up? This is the focus for our week. What, if anything, has God done to fix the mess? So we'll look at it this week as well as next week. And then our last question that we'll finish uh, on the, the very last week is, how should we reasonably respond to the action of God and Jesus? Okay, so a quick review of where we've been. Life before sin. There is one God, and that one God is really good, and that he creates everything freely, out of love, from nothing, and effortlessly. No one coerces him into it. No one forces him into it. He creates it out of a free act of love on his own choosing. And he does it without effort. It doesn't cost God anything to make everything that exists. And everything that he makes is good. This is the line you see over and over again in Genesis chapter 1. And he saw that it was good. Everything that God makes is good, or at least was good in the beginning. We see in the book of Genesis that we have a father who provides for his people. Uh, we see in Genesis chapter 1, verses 29 to 30, And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant-yielding seed which is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God creates. He creates us knowing that we are needy, and he also fulfills our needs. He provides for us. We see basic things provided, food in the garden. We also see, right, he provides plant-yielding seed, which means what? It means that nothing dies in paradise. Death was not part of God's plan. We see also in the garden that God provides for the man a woman. It says, The Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. This is a really important term, this helper. So you can see here on the bottom, helper is the word ezer, which in scripture, the only times this word is used, ezer, is, me, is when it's referring to vitally important and powerful acts of rescue and support, divine assistance. 
So when it talks about like the Lord saying, I will make a helper, he's not talking about someone who's merely going to like do the dishes and take out the trash. <laughs> That's not, and it's not merely someone who's there to like change the diapers and you know, like, make sure supper is ready when you get home from work. That's not, that's not merely the role of woman. Sometimes women take on that role. Sure. Because marriage is a partnership and you split up the roles. Absolutely. But the point here is that woman is made by God as divine assistance. Ladies, can you hear that? Yes. You are made by God as divine assistance for the men. And, and men, that doesn't diminish your role in any way. This is, this is the problem with our culture, is that if you lift one up, the other feels like it's being pushed down, and then we have this power struggle to see who can be as good as the other or better than the other. No, the point is that the man on his own does not exhaust what it means to be human, and the woman on her own does not exhaust what it means to be human, but that the two of them working together, which oftentimes is in a marriage partnership, but not always. Right? The man and the woman working side by side as healthy individuals together form what it is to be human. And that each of us is meant to be as divine assistance for the others. Right? This is something like, just imagine. Imagine how your perspective on life would change if every day you woke up and you said, how am I going to be a blessing from God for someone today? Beginning with the person sleeping next to me. How would that change your life and the lives of the people around them? Right? This is who we're meant to be for people. Divine assistance, vitally important and powerfully acting uh, in the lives of other people. This is who we're meant to be, and this is who the Father provides. He provides only the best for his sons, only the best for his daughters. Okay, now, quick review of sin. So we saw the enemy. The devil and Satan, these two uh, names, which mean accuser and divider. I mentioned this. The devil will accuse God of not being good, accuse the people around me of not being good, even accuse myself of not being good. And then on top of that, I feel like I'm divided, I'm isolated from everyone around me. This happens all the time in families, in friendships. It happens in schools. It happens in churches, as we can probably notice, right? It happens in countries, as we can probably notice. It happens around the world all the time. The devil is at work seeking to divide as much as possible so that we can doubt each other's goodness and wonder, I just feel like I can't trust anybody. This is what happens. We see in Genesis the fall where Adam and Eve say to each other, or say to themselves, right? I can determine for myself what is good and what is evil. I don't need God for that. And so the result of this ends up that all men are under the power of sin, as St. Paul says. Sin with a capital S. The power of sin and death. We might say we're under the power or we're, we're entangled in a spiritual slavery such that we can't on our own break out of it. We can't on our own. No longer are we able to live lives that naturally speaking are worthy of heaven. We're stuck in this place of sin so that we can relate very well with St. Paul when he says to the Romans, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Right? We can, we can recognize in our own lives things that we don't like doing that we know we're not supposed to do, that we don't even want to do, and yet for some reason, 
We do them anyway. Right? This is a fruit, a consequence of sin, being stuck in this spiritual slavery. St. Paul says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. We'll finish the quote at the end of our session. The wages of sin is death. Because of sin, we're trapped in this world of darkness and death. And so now we come to our question for the evening. What, if anything, has God done to fix the mess? So we're going we're gonna to look at a bunch of scripture passages, but before we do that, we need to remember a couple of things or, or make ourselves maybe newly aware of a couple of things. We have to remember that the God of the book of Genesis, that is to say the God of the Old Testament, is good. He is not a different God than the God of Jesus. He is the same God, and he is really good. A problem that we have is our common perception that we have of God in the Old Testament is that he's just angry all the time, and he's looking to punish people. We're going to look at this and hopefully debunk some of that attitude, hopefully tear down some of these walls so that we don't see God as angry all the time. Because after all, we can ask this question, what's the first thing he does after the fall? He provides clothing for them. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Right? They were ashamed. Their eyes were open. They saw that they were naked. And so they were ashamed to be in each other's presence. And so the Lord, recognizing this, he provides clothing for them so that they can be in each other's presence and not feel shame. At least not an overwhelming amount of shame. Right? This, is, this is who he is, and this is the, the big theme that I want to look at, is that he's a good father who provides for his children, even if they are sinful. And he does this, we're going to see, in incredible ways. So our session this evening is going to consist of flying through the Bible. So we're going to, we're going to try to look at as much scripture as we possibly can in the next 44 minute, 46 minutes. So obviously we can't talk about everything that's in the scriptures, right? It's a really big book. But we can point out some highlights. So we talked about this before. Genesis chapters 1 through 11, we can call it like inspired poetry, right? Where it's looking at things from a bigger picture perspective. After that, in Genesis chapter 12, everything kind of zooms in on this one character, Abram. It focuses on Abram. His name is changed to Abraham. So the names, remember, names oftentimes in scripture mean something. The name Abram means exalted father, and the name Abraham means father of nations. And then from there, God delivers to Abraham. He comes to him and he says, I'm going to promise you something. He promises him three things that Abraham, uh, first I have the order a little off, that Abraham's descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Which if you remember, it was like 70 sextillion, right? Like it's a huge number of descendants. Right? We, we, this was our first reading at Mass a couple of weeks ago. Go out and count the stars if you can. But you can't, right? He promises that your descendants, his descendants, will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And that one day, Abraham and his descendants are going to have a land that they can call their own. So whenever you hear about the promised land in Scripture, that's what we're talking about. The promise given to Abraham that him and his descendants will have a land that they can call their own. And then finally, because of Abraham's faith, the entire world is going to know the blessing of God. So descendants land in worldwide blessing. This is the triple promise to Abraham. Now, maybe some of us know the problem. The problem is that Abraham and his wife are unable to have children. They're, they're barren. And Sarah is, is super old. She's like 90 years old. 90-year-olds don't have babies, right? Like, it just doesn't happen. 
so this is a big problem, and it seems like, okay, the Lord's delivering these promises. Uh, what, like, how, how is this going to carry out? And so this goes on. He receives these promises when he and Sarah are like 90 years old, something like that. And it takes 30 years for the Lord to actually fulfill his promise. So it's like he's getting older day by day, and the promise seems like it goes on and on and on without being fulfilled until finally, in Genesis chapter 21, Isaac is born to them. Uh, Sarah conceives in her very old age and she gives birth to a son and they name him Isaac and it seems like there's a chance that the Lord could actually fulfill his promises right because without us even one descendant the promises can't be fulfilled and yet now there is a descendant and so now it's like okay maybe the Lord has something that he can work with right maybe he can perform some kind of a miracle now so this is what happens. And then this, this very strange scene shows up in Genesis chapter 22. So we're just going to read a lot. There's, there's quite a bit of reading um, this, this evening. So if you're unable to see the screen or if you need to get a little closer to read it all, uh, you're certainly welcome to. Otherwise, you're, you're welcome to just listen as I read. Anyway, so Genesis chapter 22, the Lord seems to make a pretty unreasonable request to Abraham. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, of which I shall tell you. It was funny, I was talking to the, the kids in our school earlier today, and uh, one of the seventh graders like, man, it's like the Lord's like rubbing his nose in it. Your only one, the one whom you love. <laughs> right? Like, he's like rubbing his nose in it. I was like, yeah, I've never noticed that before. <laughs> So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his ass, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the ass. I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took, his hand, he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here am I, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the burnt lamb, or where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built an altar there, and laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. Then Abraham put forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. He said, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day. On the mountain of the Lord it shall be provided. So a lot could be said about this passage, but the main point for now is that God provides the sacrifice. Right? Abraham is somehow able to receive this, this request that seems unreasonable. He's able to receive it in faith. And I was just thinking earlier, as I was talking to the kids, I was like, imagine, as he was walking up the mountain, how many accusations he heard from the enemy. Your God asked you to do what? And you're going to do it? You must not have heard him right. Or if you did, that's your God. I can imagine all the accusations he heard. And yet Abraham, in faith, he was convicted by the Lord. 
And so he believed. And it's through this belief, through his trust, right, of actually seeking to carry out the command given him by God. It's through this that the Lord could provide something amazing, something uh, instead of his son, and that the angel of the Lord could show up at just the right moment. Right? It's because of his trust, because of his faith, that he could see the Lord's providence, we say, the way that God provides. Okay, now we're going to skip ahead a few hundred years. There we go. So um, Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac had two sons named Jacob and Esau. Esau was the older of the son, and Jacob was the one who received the blessing by deception and trickery, which is not just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean it was a good thing. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, he, Jacob received the blessing. Jacob ends up uh, wrestling with an angel of the Lord over, overnight. Uh, his name is changed to Israel, which I forgot to look up what that means. Uh, and anyway, Israel has 12 sons, so that's how we end up with the 12 tribes of Israel, right? So one of jo uh, J Jacob's 12 sons is Joseph. Joseph is the favorite of, of Jacob. Not that parents have favorites, right? No, we know they do. Um, <laughs> anyway, so Joseph is the favorite. So Joseph, because he's the favorite, his brothers become envious of him, and they want to kill him. A couple of the brothers prevent the rest of the brothers from killing him, so they end up selling him into slavery. And he sort of gets lost in slavery in Egypt for a number of years, such that uh, the brothers eventually tell Jacob, Israel, that their son has been killed, or that his son has been killed. And so anyway, so Joseph kind of gets lost in the shuffle of things, but the story in Genesis keeps following him. Uh, Joseph, it turns out, is a really good interpreter of dreams. So when he's in prison in Egypt, he's able to interpret dreams for the Pharaoh. And the interpretation of the dreams uh, turns out to be this miraculous providence from the Lord. Uh, that the, the dream he interprets from Pharaoh is that there's going to be a great feast for seven years, and then there's going to be a great famine for seven years. So in other words, they need to store up their grain for seven years so that during the seven years of famine, they can have enough food that they can share with all of the Egyptians and the surrounding people. So then what happens is, is exactly as Joseph interprets, there's this great, great feast. The, the crops come in better than ever, and so they store up the grains and all of the food. And then after that, there's this great famine, such that all of the Egyptians and the people in the surrounding area come to Egypt to get food because they know that there's enough there. And so Pharaoh uh, basically elevates Joseph to be like his right-hand man. It says that he's, he's basically Pharaoh in all ways except by title. So he's like the most powerful man in Egypt. And eventually, Jacob, or Joseph's brothers and their father run out of food themselves. And so they come to Egypt. And there, Joseph reveals himself to them. Uh, and there's this really happy reunion. And Israel, Jacob, his whole family, moves to Egypt. Uh, to be with Joseph so that they can be close to the food. It's this really great ending to the book of Genesis. And then the book of Exodus uh, begins with this, talking about a new king arising who did not know Joseph. In other words, he forgot about the legacy of what Joseph left behind. And so what happens is uh, they, the, the Israelites are multiplying and they um, begin to be afraid. I think my battery's dying I have a replacement, just a second. <laughs> okay. Okay, great. Yeah. 
Perfect. Okay, so the people are then enslaved. The, the, the uh, Pharaoh becomes nervous about the Hebrew people multiplying and multiplying and multiplying, and they become nervous that if the Hebrew people ever decide to rebel against the Egyptians, that it's not going to go well for the Egyptians. So in, instead of like becoming friendly with them, they enslave them, and they treat them poorly, and they force them to do all kinds of manual labor. And uh, they even begin killing all of the sons born of Hebrew women so that they have no men to do, uh, to do the fighting. And so what happens is the Lord sees all of this and he calls to Moses uh, in Exodus chapter 3, uh, which for most of us at Mass this weekend, that's the first reading that we heard. Some of us heard a different set of readings because of uh, people being baptized uh, at Easter. But, but nonetheless, the Lord calls to Moses and he says, to, you, know, he says you need to go to Pharaoh and, and tell him that he needs to let the people go. Pharaoh doesn't, right? We know this. And then there's these ten plagues. The, the river turns to blood. There's gnats all over the place. People get boils all over their skin. The locusts come. The flies come. The beasts all get this disease and they die. Uh, there's a great hailstorm. Um, there's a, a severe darkness that covers over everything. There's frogs everywhere, right? All these plagues. And throughout the plagues, the first nine plagues anyways, Pharaoh's heart remains obstinate, hard-hearted, stubborn. He refuses to let them go. There are times when it says, no, okay, you can go, but only the men. Or you can go, but you got to leave the animals behind. And the Lord says through Moses, no, it's all of us and everything we have or nothing. And Pharaoh says, no, fine, you don't get to go. Okay, great. So then this last plague, the tenth plague, the Lord says to, uh, says to Moses, this final thing, this final thing, it's going to make Pharaoh shake in his boots so badly that the whole Egyptian people will be begging you to go. The Lord is saying, I have a plan, and I'm going to carry out this plan. And this plan uh, begins in Exodus chapter 11, and then in chapter 12, the Lord gives very direct um, instructions to the Israelite people about this plan. So this ultimately is carried out through the Passover lamb. So we're going to read some more uh, slides here. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month they shall take every man a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then a man and his neighbor next to his house shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You shall take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs in the evening. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat them. They shall eat the flesh that night roasted with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled with water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts." And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you upon the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague shall fall upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall observe it as an ordinance forever. 
So these are the instructions the Lord gives to the Egyptians. And uh, one thing maybe just to point out is, is this line, one, two, three, four, five, six lines up, uh, seven lines up, eight, nine, sorry, four lines down. <laughs> and so anyway, so it says, and on all, on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. So in other words, why is the Lord doing this? He's doing it, one, to set his people free, but two, to show the Egyptians that their gods are not God. To show them that their gods are not powerful like he is powerful. It's ultimately an execution of judgment on the false idol worship of the Egyptians. That's why he's doing this. To prove that he is the Lord. So then what happens? Well, it's exactly as the Lord says. They do the thing with the lambs. They sprinkle the blood on the doorposts. Uh, they, they go to bed. That night, the angel of the Lord passes over the, the Israelite houses, the ones who are signing that they already worship the Lord, the true God. And then from there, the firstborns of the uh, Egyptians, of man and beast alike, are killed. Uh, in the middle of the night, they wake up, and they're terrified, and they beg them to leave. Right? In other words, what happens? The Lord makes a way for them to be set free from slavery. Right? And then from there, they, they travel on, and, and they run into more bumps in the road. But nonetheless, the Lord always provides a way for them all throughout. He provides a way for them to be set free from their slavery. It's this incredible thing, right? They cross the Red Sea. They're, they're, they're in slavery no more. But the problem is this, that as they're in the desert, and I'm, I talked about this over the weekend, as they're in the desert, the problem that reveals itself is... Yes, they are saved from their physical slavery, but they're still stuck, ultimately, in their spiritual slavery. They're still stuck in this rebellious spirit against the Lord. So now, we're going we're gonna to jump ahead 1,500 more years. Uh, so as they're in the desert, they're in the desert for 40 years, we know, and in that time, God provides what? He provides quail and manna for them in Exodus 16, because they're grumbling and complaining that they don't have any food. He provides water for them in Exodus 17, because they're grumbling and complaining that they don't have any water. He provides protection from their enemies. He provides a way of life through the commandments. He provides eventually the land in Joshua. They enter into the promised land. He provides a king and a kingdom in 1 Samuel chapter 10 and what follows, beginning with King Saul and then into King David, the great king. Right? He provides all of these things. But the, the thing is that the reason he provides for these things is because, because they keep complaining. They, they, like, they, they want the Lord to do for them whatever they want. They keep grumbling. They keep uh, wanting to, like, let us be like the other people. Let us, we don't want to be a people that's different, a people that's set apart. I know, Lord, that you want to be our God, but we want to be like the other nations. Make us like them. Right? And so they struggle with this, with this grumbling, with idolatry. They make the golden calf while Moses is up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments from the Lord. They're down downstairs making the golden calf and committing grave sins of sexual immorality and idolatry. They're insisting on their own way and they want to be like everyone else. This line from St. Paul, you could almost imagine it being uh, heard, what did I just do? <laughs> there we go. It's a new projector. We're working with it. The wages of sin is death, St. Paul says. This is a line you can, as you read the Old Testament, you can almost hear it over and over and over again, just lingering in the background. The wages of sin is death. The people are stuck. They're stuck in this place of death and darkness. 
you read the books of Kings, you just read like this guy succeeded his father and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and then he died. And then this guy succeeded his father and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and then he died. And this guy, he succeeded his father and he did mostly what was right actually in the sight of the Lord, but he kept doing this wicked thing and then he died. This line over and over and over again, these wicked kings who do wicked things. And so that also bears the fruit of wicked people, people who insist on their own ways, people who are rebellious against the ways of the Lord, stuck in this spiritual slavery. And because of their spiritual slavery, what happens actually is that the people eventually fell back into physical slavery. The Lord provides for them. He provides a way of life for them. He provides a land for them. He provides a king and a kingdom for them. Uh, but at the same time, he doesn't want these people to just do whatever the heck they want to do. He wants to give them life. He wants them to become like himself. So he's not satisfied with them just insisting on their own way and rebelling against him. So what he does is he sends prophets over and over and over again to deliver warnings to them saying to them, you need to repent. You need to turn around and turn back toward the Lord. And if you don't, it's not going to end well for you. This is what the prophet's job is to do. The problem is that they didn't obey, and so they end up in exile. The kingdom splits into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. People come in from Assyria to the northern kingdom and destroy the northern kingdom, and they lead the exiles off into Assyria, and they leave others behind. So that what happens? So that God's chosen people begin to intermingle and intermarry with the Assyrians. These are who these, the Samaritans are. They, they end up intermingling so that you can no longer really tell, like, who's God's chosen people and who are these other people. So in other words, right, the promise to Abraham that he'll have descendants now becomes a little bit murky. Right? Like, who are the descendants of Abraham? Well, I don't know anymore because they started to intermingle with these other people. What happens then, uh, the southern kingdom, people from Babylon, come into the southern kingdom and they destroy the temple, the house of God, the one place that the Israelites knew was theirs and that theirs is where God lived. And that place was destroyed. It's like the most tragic thing that could happen. And then the Babylonians led them off into exile, away from the promised land that the Lord had promised because of their sinfulness, their insistence on doing things their own way. The three promises to Abraham, descendants, we saw how that becomes murky. Land, now the people are brought away from the land. And worldwide blessing, it seems like now they're a cursed people rather than a blessed people. Right, they're stuck in this place of spiritual slavery. And so all of this takes place. But the thing about the prophets is this, that when the Lord sends a prophet, he, the, the prophets come with a warning uh, that there's going to be destruction on the way, that the Lord is not always going to protect his people. And uh, that's, that's true. But then there's also oftentimes accompanied with a promise of restoration. In other words, it's this. God is a good father, so he punishes when punishment is necessary. But the punishment is never without reason or never without purpose. He punishes always for the purpose of restoration and healing. And these are what these promises are. The Lord says, I will bring you back into the land. I will gather my people again. There's these warnings of destruction, but always a promise of restoration and healing. Remember, we talked about this. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. That word salvation talks about or has the same root as, as health. The gospel makes us whole. It heals us. 
And this is what the Lord is getting at through the promises of the prophets. In other words, things are bad now, but I'm promising you that good news will come. One of the examples of those promises comes in Isaiah chapter 52, verse, uh, verse 13 to 53, verse 12. So this is a, another kind of long, long set of slides here. So this is the suffering servant. Behold, my servant shall prosper. He shall be exalted and lifted up, and he shall be very high. As many were astonished at him, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the sons of men. So shall he startle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they shall see, and that which they have not heard they shall understand. Who has believed what we have heard, and to whom has the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or comeliness that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that made us whole, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When he makes himself an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the fruit of the travail of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So this is called the suffering servant. There are, in the book of Isaiah, four suffering servant songs. These are the passages for them. The other ones are, are quite a bit shorter. Uh, this one's much longer. But throughout these suffering servant songs, the Lord, through the prophet Isaiah, refers to someone whom he calls my servant. So this person is going to be sent by God as a servant of God. And somehow this servant is going to set God's people free. And not just God's people, but that he's going to bring the knowledge of God to the whole earth that all people are going to be set free. In other words, what's the Lord saying? He's saying that he will provide, that he has a plan for his people and he is going to take care of his people. And even the people who don't yet know that they are his people, he is going to provide. He's going to provide for his favorite creature. Right? He's going to take care of each one of us is his plan. That's what his servant is going to do. So what happens then is that there's this waiting for fulfillment, right? The prophets deliver these promises, and then there's this constant period of like, what's, what's going to happen? The Lord sends more prophets, which means there are more warnings that people need to turn away because they just keep not turning away. Or sometimes they will turn away, and then they'll turn right back to their sinful ways. So the Lord sends more prophets over and over again. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Amos, 
Habakkuk, uh, 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 I forgot the rest, Zephaniah, Zechariah, right? There's a bunch of prophets. Uh, and uh, with these prophets, there are more promises. And then there's just waiting and waiting and waiting. The final prophet of the Old Testament is the prophet Malachi. So if you open your Bibles and you look at the prophets, Malachi will be the last one. The final words of the prophet Malachi is this, from the Lord. Now I am sending to you Elijah the prophet before the day of the Lord comes, the great and terrible day. He will turn the heart of fathers to their sons and the heart of sons to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with utter destruction. So what's the Lord saying? He's like, okay, now I'm sending. Right now I'm sending Elijah. And then there's 250 years of silence in the scriptures. That is to say, there's no official prophets that we have in our scriptures. So the Lord's saying, now I'm sending, and then the people have to just wait, and there's nothing. It's like, okay, Lord, you said now, right? His timing's different than ours. So there's 250 years of silence, and then what happens? And then in the Bible, the Gospels begin. Now remember, the Gospel word is good news, and not just good news, but life-changing, transformative news that changes everything about the way that we see and experience life. Just like D-Day for the French citizens is the best news that they had ever received at that time, so too now the Gospels are meant to be good news for us. That we hear them, right? So in other words, if the Gospels are beginning, that's meant to catch my attention of like, okay, what's going on? It's almost like you can imagine yourself watching a movie, right? And there's this big turn, and, and it's like you sort of move to the edge of your seat because you just know something good is about to happen. That's what's going on here. So in Luke chapter 1, we're introduced to this couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth, who, similar to Abraham and Sarah, are older and barren, unable to have children. Zechariah is chosen as the high priest, and he enters the Holy of Holies. In other words, he like wins the lottery. He gets to go to this very special place that only one person can go one time a year. And there he meets an angel, which in itself is incredible to see an angel face to face, right? Because angels don't have bodies. So the fact that someone could see an angel face to face is a miracle in itself. But nonetheless, he meets an angel, and that angel has a message. The angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he shall drink no wine nor strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now remember, the final prophecy of Malachi, the final prophet of the Old Testament. Now I am sending to you Elijah the prophet before the day of the Lord comes, the great and terrible day. He will turn the heart of fathers to their sons and the heart of sons to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with utter destruction. The message of the angel, right? In the spirit and the power of Elijah, he will go to turn the hearts of fathers to their children, right? This is something that needs to catch our attention. Like I am reading something. I'm getting a glimpse into something. Maybe even try to imagine something incredible is about to happen. Like this is, this is like this movie has this huge turning point. And this angel is saying something. The Lord promised that he was sending Elijah. And now the message of the angel is saying that this particular son born to these people is coming in the spirit and the power of Elijah to do exactly what the Lord said Elijah would do in the last prophet. Like, some, what's, what's going on? Something amazing is happening here. 
something incredible, things are getting good, right? So we want to like tune in, like what's going on? So Zechariah doubts the angel, and as a sign of his lack of faith, he's struck mute. He can no longer talk. He goes home, Elizabeth conceives, which I just imagine that was probably a little awkward, right? He gets home, he's quiet, he can't talk. It's like, all right, let's, let's go to work, right? Elizabeth conceives, and then she, out of modesty for what the Lord has done, out of modesty for the great gift the Lord has given to her, she modestly goes into hiding. Uh, she, she just, just de departs from the world so that she can just be quiet with herself and with the gift the Lord has given her in her old age. And then what happens? Meanwhile, Gabriel visits Mary, right? We know what happens there. The angel comes to Mary, to a virgin betrothed to a man named Joseph, who was of the house of David, right? Which is another promise that is going to be fulfilled. And the virgin's name was Mary. And, the Gabriel, and, and Gabriel says, Hail, full of grace. You're going to conceive in your womb. And the child is going to be the savior of God's people. And then what happens? Out of excitement, Mary finds out that Elizabeth is pregnant, and she makes haste. She runs to visit Elizabeth, traveling miles and miles and miles to go and visit Elizabeth. She herself just found out she's going to like bear the, the savior of the world. And in excitement for her older cousin, she runs to go and greet her and care for her in her pregnancy. What happens? When she gets there, John, the baby in Elizabeth's womb, leaps for joy. From there, Mary prays this prayer, the Magnificat. My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked with favor on his lowly servant. From this day, all generations will call me blessed. The Almighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. This beautiful prayer, inspired by Jesus in Mary. Right? It's as uh, St. Louis de Montfort talks about this prayer, the Magnificat, as though it is Jesus within Mary praying this prayer of gratitude and thanksgiving. Whenever I receive communion, I pray this prayer silently. Jesus praying within this incredible gift that, that is within the womb. These people coming together, these holy people, God working out his design. And then what happens? John is born, and Zechariah's mouth is opened, and he prays a, a, a great canticle, a great poem, a great song, praising God. Blessed be the Lord, God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Who are our enemies? The devil. The devil, sin, death, Satan, hell. These are our enemies, right? Saying that we shall be saved from our enemies and from all who hate us to perform the mercy promised to our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. This incredible prayer, this incredible insight that the Lord gives to Zechariah to pray and proclaim out loud, right? That we're going to be delivered from our enemies and that this child is going to be the prophet of the Most High. Through the tender mercy of our God, 
when the day shall dawn upon us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. What does all this mean? It means that God hasn't forgotten, that he still has a plan to provide for his people. 250 years of silence, and now the Lord seems like maybe he's forgotten, except now he's like bursting forth, revealing that he has not forgotten, that he has a plan, and that his plan is at work right now for his people. We meet this figure, John the Baptist in the Gospels. He grows up, he becomes a man, he goes preaching in the wilderness, fulfilling his mission. What's the message? The message of John the Baptist, repent of your sins. The Lord is coming, make straight the way of the Lord. Make it easy for him when he comes. Turn away from your sins and walk the way that leads to life. Walk the way of the Lord. Make it easy when he comes to destroy our enemies so that he doesn't have to destroy you. That's the message of John the Baptist. It's actually kind of, it's like a harsh, direct message. And yet, people were receiving it. It says uh, in the gospel that all of, all of Judea were going out to John to be baptized by him with this baptism of repentance. And then what happens? He sees Jesus and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb of God. Okay, now we're going to skip ahead three years toward the end of the gospel. So Luke chapter 22, we're, uh, there's 24 chapters in the gospel of Luke. So in chapter 22, you can imagine something big is about to happen. right? So in Exodus chapter 12, God commanded a yearly celebration of the Passover meal as a memory, a commemoration of that great time when the Lord brought his people out of Israel. The people, when they would celebrate the Passover, they would celebrate it, entering into it as though it happened to them. So it wouldn't be like the Lord led our ancestors out of the out of slavery, but they would say, the Lord led me out of slavery. That's the, the kind of celebration that would happen. So anyway, so this was something that would still happen at the time of Jesus. In fact, it still happens today. Uh, but nonetheless, so Jesus now is preparing to celebrate the Passover. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house which he enters, and tell the householder, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I am to eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. There make ready. And they went and found it as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he sat at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I shall not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this, and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I shall not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after supper, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Okay, so we'll offer comments on this in a minute, but first we've got to go to the cross. Since it was the day of preparation, in order to prevent the bodies, so Jesus is on the cross, he's, he's been crucified, in order to prevent the bodies from remaining on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. 
But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he tells the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they have pierced. That quote, not a bone of him shall be broken, comes from Exodus chapter 12, where there are instructions for the Passover lamb. Right, so there's a connection being made. The directions of the Passover, not a bone of him shall be broken. And he's saying, this fulfills the scripture, not a bone of him shall be broken. Which is fascinating. They're about to break his bones. And then they saw that he was already dead, and so his bones were prevented from being broken. This other passage, they shall look on him whom they have pierced. This comes from the prophet Zechariah. There's a couple of quotes that I was, I was just reading today. It's just like, I think they're, they're phenomenal. For Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10 says this. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of compassion and supplication, so that when they look on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. And then 13 verse 1. On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. A fountain open, right? His side is pierced. And out flows this fountain, a fountain to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. In other words, what are we saying? We're saying that Jesus, dramatic effect, Jesus is the Passover lamb of God, right? He is like something superseding the old Passover lamb. Now, Jesus is the Passover lamb of God. Remember, your lamb shall be without blemish. Jesus is without sin. They shall eat the flesh that night. Jesus gives his flesh to the apostles at the Last Supper. In the Gospel of John, chapter 6, he says, My flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. Sprinkle the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. The blood pours out from his pierced side as a fountain that cleanses them from sin. In fact, the, the man, the, the soldier who pierced him, his name was Longinus. When he pierced him, his blood poured out. Jesus' blood poured out on him. He had a conversion. Now we know him to be Saint Longinus. I've been to Rome and I've seen a relic, a piece of the clothing that he was wearing when he pierced Jesus and the blood poured out. The blood of the lamb provides new life, cleansing from sin. Right, if this is true, what did the lamb do in the old covenant? It provided freedom from physical slavery. So what does the lamb do in the new covenant? It provides freedom from spiritual slavery. What does that mean? It means the kingdom of sin no longer has power over those who have been cleansed with the blood of the lamb. St. Paul says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God provides for his people in the most remarkable ways, the most incredible ways. St. Peter talks about it like this. You know that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was destined before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest at the end of the times for your sake. Through him you have confidence in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Purchased with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. St. Paul talks about this 
to the Ephesians. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles, that is not God's people, you Gentiles in the flesh were at the same were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near in the blood of Christ. He says to the Corinthians, Christ, our Passover lamb, our Paschal lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. You see, the promise was for Jews and Gentiles both to come together united in the blood of the lamb. Right, so we can go back to our question for the session. What, if anything, has God done to fix the mess? We see that throughout history, from the beginning, God has provided for his people. And he hasn't stopped providing everything necessary for his people. This is no different. He has provided the lamb for the sacrifice. Remember what Abraham said all the way back in Genesis 22. God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering. And then he saw a ram caught in a thicket, and this was his sacrifice. Now we see Jesus, the lamb of God, crowned with thorns, and this is the sacrifice. The Lord God has been actively at work behind the scenes from the beginning to make sure that you and I could receive new life, to make sure that you and I could receive freedom from the spiritual slavery that we had bound ourselves up in because of the fall of Adam and Eve, giving us the opportunity to break free from sin and its captivity. That we actually, by the blood of Christ, no longer have to surrender to the accusations and the wiles of the enemy. But instead, we can drench ourselves with the blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who has been crucified, whose blood has been poured out for you and for me, and who feeds us with his flesh and his blood. <laughs> what an incredible gift. What an incredible gift. God shows that he is willing to do everything to save his favorite creature from sin. Take your son, your only one, the one whom you love, and sacrifice him. He saves Abraham from that misery so that he can do it himself. There's nothing better. Just try to let yourself get lost in that mystery, right? Like, it's so amazing. Let's, let's actually, we'll finish with prayer, and then we'll, we'll do our reflection questions. Father, we thank you. We thank you, thank you, for all of the ways that you have been at work for us. Thank you, Father, for how you have saved me, your favorite creature, from death and sin. For setting me free from spiritual slavery by the blood of the Lamb of God, your Son, your only one whom you love. It's just incredible, Lord, and I thank you for it. And I pray that you would let me get lost in this mystery, not just today, but every day for the rest of my life. 
so that I can never forget how you saved not my family, not my friends, but how you saved me. I pray for these people, Father, that they may know not that you saved their family, their friends, but that you saved each one of them and set them free from spiritual slavery to live in freedom with you. Draw us, Father, draw us all into the mystery of your Son, Jesus, the Lamb of God. Help us to be caught in wonder and awe at your response to our sin. Give us unshakable <coughs> confidence, unshakable confidence in the ways that you've been at work throughout history. I pray this all in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, just a few reflection questions for you before you go. You can take these with you. So the first question, were you able to really sink your mind into the spiritual slavery we discussed last session? Were you able to recognize and name anything maybe in your life that you hadn't seen before or, or that you had seen but weren't able to put a name to it, right? This, like, have you ever asked yourself the question, why do I keep doing this? Right, maybe last week was helpful to sort of open your eyes to that and to see uh, that there's a reason for it. Or if you weren't, right, maybe why not? What, what do you think might be preventing you from really being able to, to sink your mind into this? Next, how have you in the past considered God as depicted in the Old Testament? And does this change anything about that? Of course, I hope it does. I hope it, it helps us to see that God is not just angry and looking to punish, but that God is a good father. That's, that's the hope for sure, but, but it's for you to maybe re reflect on that. Like, does, Am I able to see this now, or has this changed anything about the way that I've seen God? And then lastly, every week at Mass... Uh, we're going to get there, I promise. Come on. There we go. Ah, oh. uh, stupid. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it works. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Every week at Mass, we hear Jesus called the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God. Behold him who takes away the sins of the world. Blessed are those who are called to the Supper of the Lamb. How will this take on new meaning for you moving forward? I think for a lot of us, it can just be like, yeah, this is the thing we do right before we go to communion. And then we do it, and then we watch Father, you know, kind of do a couple things, and then the people go and we're going to help distribute communion, right? But instead, it's like, maybe, maybe I can try to, like, let this line capture me a little bit, right? Behold the Lamb of God. Behold him who takes away the sins of the world. That is, by eating the flesh of the Lamb, being drenched in his blood, that I am set free from slavery, right? Will this take on a new meaning for you moving forward? Okay, same thing uh, next week. Well, not the same thing. It'll be different, actually. Uh, actually, yeah, next week. So next week's, next week's uh, the, the preaching will be, um, it will be a little bit different because there's something at the end that, that I decided to add on. Um, it'll still just be an hour, uh, but I'm, I'm just really excited about it. So anyway, take this home, reflect on it, rest in the blood of the Lamb, and uh, come back next week, and we'll continue looking at God's response to our sin. All right, God bless you. Thanks, Thanks Joe.